What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. You are listening to Killer. This is case number 13, The Happy Face Killer, Part 2. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. What happened with the first murder? I picked up a woman at a bar, took her home. The conversations, extremely candid, full of disturbing details. A killer, in his own words, tells us how and why he committed the first of his grisly murders in January 1990, the very same year his divorce to Melissa's mom was finalized. We were drinking beer a lot that day. The woman he met in a Portland-area bar was a 23-year-old named Tanya Bennett, described by family as overtly friendly and developmentally slow. Took her home. I thought I was going to get lucky. After a night of heavy drinking, the two left the bar and headed back to Jesperson's suburban red brick home, where he lured her and attempted to have sex. Comments were made and different things, and, and uh, an altercation happened, and I struck her. I actually had hit her in the face, and some reason, I just kept on hitting her in the face, and because of that, I, I feared going to prison for slugging her in the face and causing bodily injury, and so I killed her. You After, meant to kill her? Oh, yes, I did. I meant to kill her to cover up the assault. You say it very matter-of-factly, with no remorse or hint of remorse. Uh, in... It is matter-of-fact, that's what it is. After strangling Bennett with his bare hands, Jesperson left her lifeless body behind and returned to the bar to coldly continue drinking and establish an alibi. He then drove the body up the old scenic highway and dumped it in the dense brush just miles from where he and his children liked to frolic in those waterfalls. I put the body up there in the Columbia River Gorge. Uh, I had tied a rope around its neck mostly to, I didn't know how the body reacted when you started moving it. Days later, Bennett's body was discovered, but Jesperson would not become a suspect. And this is where the story takes a strange turn. Out of the blue, a total stranger comes forward to take credit for the crime with a bizarre false confession. This woman tries to frame her abusive boyfriend, telling police he murdered Tanya Bennett using details of the crime from newspaper reports. Detective Rick Buckner investigated the case. She actually went so far as to buy a purse and put it in the trunk of John's car, claiming it was Tanya Bennett's. Having incriminated herself, she now faced prison for something she had nothing to do with. We had people in custody for a crime they didn't commit. Meanwhile, the real killer is frustrated and envious of all the attention the pair is receiving for his crime. I was puzzled. I'd say I was, it, was, it was something that just caught me kind of like off guard, um, especially when I heard that one had confessed to it. 
So back on the road in a rest stop bathroom, he scribbles on the wall. January 21, 1990. Killed Tanya Bennett in Portland. Two people got the blame, so I can kill again. And he did. Two years later, he embarked on a killing spree. What about Lorianne Pentland? Yes, I did kill her, yeah. Her, her attitude was like uh, her life was all hell, and she didn't want to be around, and, and she wanted me to feel sorry for her. And I just, well, you know, I can kill you. You put you out of your misery. And she said, go for it, so I did. She asked you to kill her? Well, I, I told her that, you know, if your life's so bad, why don't you just end it? He recounts the details of his crimes with a chilling lack of emotion. There was Cynthia Rose. You killed her over a parking spot? Yes, I did. It was, it was supposed to be a parking spot. Number five and six were Jane Doe's. In 1995, number seven, Angela Sabriz. Killing her, it seems, wasn't enough. Is she the victim that you tied under the truck? Yes, she is, yeah. Why did you do that? I felt that by dragging her under the truck that I would destroy all evidence of who her identity was. Did you choke all of the women? Yes, I did, yeah. Why did you choke them? That's what I had done with the first one, so I never changed. It worked the first time, so I went to the second and third, fourth and fifth, sixth and seventh. It is so gruesome what you're describing. I mean, there's a possibility that these people's family members might be listening to you describing this. I'm sorry it happened. Wish it never happened. And can we move on? Can we move on? Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, it's done, it's over with. On Tuesday evening, January 23, 1990, 23-year-old Tanya Bennett decided to go out for a few drinks and to hopefully meet up with a few of her friends. It was a cold, damp night, typical weather for that time of year in Portland, Oregon, which could arguably, arguably be placed among the top 10 rain capitals of the world, and Tanya dressed appropriately. After grabbing her purse and umbrella, she climbed into her car and drove towards the B&I Tavern, one of her favorite haunts in, or in Portland, Oregon's southeast side. Upon her arrival at the tavern, Tanya, unable to make up her mind what she wanted to drink, settled on a beer and then a wine cooler, and continued to switch back and forth between the two drinks as the evening wore on. Before long, Tanya, who had been described by family members as mentally slow and slightly retarded, became visibly intoxicated. At first, Tanya never paid much attention to the tall, burly-looking, loud-mouthed man sitting at the bar, judging from all of his outward appearances. Bar patrons would later say that he hadn't paid much attention to Tanya until later in the evening after it became apparent that Tanya was feeling the effects of alcohol. But he had been watching her all night, mentally making plans for the remainder of the evening. A little later, the man casually walked over to the pool table area where Tanya had been watching the players with a glass of beer in his hand. He introduced himself to her and offered to buy her a drink. She accepted and, unbeknownst to her, had set in motion a series of events that would ultimately end her young life. The man's name was Keith Hunter Jesperson, but Tanya may have known him only as Keith or perhaps even by some other name. Jesperson was known to use a number of aliases, often a variation of his real name, and in all likelihood, he had used an alias on this particular night. 
whatever he called himself that night, the 35-year-old, six-foot-six tall hulk of a man who weighed in around 240 pounds had made quite an imprint on young, impressionable Tanya. She had been easy to befriend. She trusted everyone and hadn't yet really learned just how horrible some people can be. At one point, Jesperson excused himself and left the tavern for a while without explaining to Tanya where he was going. When he returned a short time later, he met Tanya outside and offered to buy her dinner. However, when he checked his wallet to see how much money he had, he then realized he didn't have enough cash to buy himself dinner, much less himself and Tanya. He told Tanya that he had more money at home and invited her to accompany him there to get it. Tanya willingly agreed to accompany Jesperson to his residence, located nearby, and when they arrived, she followed him inside. Unaware that the quest for cash had been merely a ruse to separate her from the tavern and the patrons inside it, instead of retrieving money to buy dinner, he coaxed her into having sex. Later, as he would become, as would become his custom, the pent-up anger that had been seething inside Jesperson for so long made its way to the surface. Even before getting dressed after their sexual tryst, he began taunting Tanya, and before long was making mean, cruel remarks to her, and soon they went into a full-blown argument during which Jesperson, by his own admission, began striking her. When Tanya attempted to fight back and defend herself against this giant of a man, Jesperson began to viciously beat her about the face and head. In one swift movement, he placed one of his massive hands around her frail neck, and with the other he grabbed a rope. Without even taking the time to think about his actions, Jesperson wrapped the rope around Tanya's neck and pulled it taut as he strangled her and watched the life slowly leave her body. When she ceased to struggle and her body became limp, he let her partially nude body slump to the floor. Jesperson didn't panic after killing Tanya. Leaving her inside the rented house, he drove back to the BNI tavern and sat around drinking and talking to anyone who would listen to him, presumably to establish an alibi for himself. After a few more beers, Jesperson drove back to the house and calmly loaded Tanya's body into the front seat of a friend's car. Knowing they had to dispose of the body, he drove eastward, past Portland city limits, the airport, past Gresham and Troutdale, toward the Columbia River Gorge. Sticking to the old highway, which was much darker, far less traveled, and consisted of a series of curves and switchbacks, Jesperson found a suitable place near Crown Point, where it was secluded and dark, just the right place to dump a body. He pulled the car over to the side and stopped it. It was quiet, and there were no sounds of traffic in the distance. Confident that he was alone, Jesperson pulled Tanya's body out of the car and tossed it over the embankment of one of the switchbacks, discarding her corpse as if it were a piece of unwanted rubbish. Did it quickly. Um, last week, you know, we talked a lot about Jesperson, and we talked a lot about his family life, his upbringing, and his daughter. Um, and now we're kind of into the meat and potatoes, if you will, of the whole saga um he you know right off the rip he's after the uh, a mentally handicapped woman um of all people is the first person that he takes advantage of and if you recall from last week you know he was not one to shy away from hurting or torturing animals and now he's seemingly escalated that behavior up and now he's moved on to doing it to people do you think that that he targeted her for that specific reason it it seems to me like he, he's this big burly dude who could obviously crush a lot of people just with his size and strength. But to me, the way that that read, it sounded like she was an easy target. She was getting drunk. She was a little slow, even by her family's own admission. She was, you know, a little bit mentally handicapped. Um, 
it just sounds like it was a crime of opportunity at that point. And he finally, the, the switch had been turned on where he wanted to kill a person. Yeah. I don't know that he targeted her because she was mentally handicapped, but I bet that it made it a little bit easier. Like, you know, um, there are people who are mentally handicapped who can seem somewhat normal until you start really like knowing them and knowing their habits and things that they do and decisions that they make. But like outwardly, they can have a conversation with you and seem relatively normal, you know, and especially if you're in a bar setting where people are getting drunk, you might not really know, you know, because some people seem mentally handicapped when they're drinking. I mean, let's just be real. And that's not to be making fun of people, but um, or ma- making fun of mentally handicapped. I'm just saying, like, you know, I've been around drunk people who you could assume they were mentally handicapped once they start drinking alcohol. It's like all common sense just leaves them and just they lose basic functioning and you know what I mean so I don't know how bad off she was you know she might not have been it sounds like she wasn't like you know too bad because you know she could go to the bar and have drinks and stuff and um you know was social with people she just probably was a little naive obviously in this case she was she went back but I mean again who knows you know there's a lot of people that go back home with people from the bar that they've never met before um so none of these actions strike me as anything like way too out of place or out of bounds. They're unfortunate, but they're not something that I would say like is completely uncommon at the bar scene. Yeah, sure. Yeah. The others, there's definitely varying levels of, you know, mental and developmental handicaps. I, ha- I have a couple of my cousins in my family and they, they don't have the motor function to go out into public and do something like this. They're in assisted living and that's just, you know, it's it's a more extreme case. So it sounds like, yeah, I agree with what you said. It sounds like she's a little bit more on the normal side. She can take care of herself. She can go out and do these things. Maybe it's just a, maybe it's just a learning thing or just a, you know, that slow, maybe, maybe she didn't score real high on the IQ test. <laughs> we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. I don't, <clears throat> excuse me. I don't know. She's so. somewhere between Stephen Avery and Craig. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I need, we need to retake that and set the bar a little higher for myself. Hey, man, I got beat by all the listeners, too. I just beat you, so that's all I care about. That's okay. <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess when it comes to setting the bar, somebody's got to set that low bar, right? That's right. Well, uh, we'll <laughs> leave you on the struggle bus. <laughs> we'll keep, yeah. keep on moving. <laughs> well, my, bragging, my bragging rights are I have twice the IQ of Stephen Avery, so... Yeah, but see, on our scale, you were still in the very good range. So, hey, man, nothing to be ashamed of. You just weren't a genius <laughs> like me. <laughs> Actually, I think Uh-oh. I was still in the very good range, too. I was just at the very, very top of the very good range. But everybody else beat us. Well, you know, all of those who were willing to share, of course. I don't know how many of you decided to take that IQ test but then didn't share your results. I'm suspicious that there are many of you out there who took the test and then decided, F that, I'm not sharing that. <laughs> Which is okay. I would have done the same thing. If I wouldn't have done as well as I did, I was feeling pretty good about myself until other scores started rolling in. So <laughs> I would have, I would have, I would have for sure photoshopped that bad boy. If I'd have, <laughs> if I'd have pulled a 68 or 69, like Avery, <laughs> I don't think you'd be, <laughs> be working at the place you work on a 69 IQ. No, I don't think so. I don't know. I know some 68s and 69s walking around, so it's not not snapped a judgment too quickly there. Set up and serve. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. Well, let's yeah. continue on. After discarding Tanya's body, Jesperson exited the highway and tossed the Walkman she had left inside the car out of the window. He then drove back to the truck stop near Troutdale and drank coffee the remainder of the night. Yet another attempt to establish an alibi for himself, if it turned out that one was needed. Afterward, just after dawn, and now wide awake on a caffeine high, Jesperson drove up the Sandy River Highway and flung the contents of Tanya's purse, which included her organ identification as well as the purse itself into a brushy area near the river. Days later, a passerby found Tanya's body where it had landed in a ditch after tumbling down the embankment. Horrified by the grisly discovery, the passerby notified the police. Photos were taken, the crime scene was processed in the usual manner, and the body was taken to the morgue where it was initially identified only as a Jane Doe. Tanya's death didn't make much news at first in the local newspapers. The articles that first appeared consisted of only a few short paragraphs outlining the discovery of her body and the police statements that she was found half-dressed, beaten and strangled to death, and that one of her teeth had punctured her lower lip, and the fact that she had a rope around her neck. A description of her physical appearance was also published, and it didn't take long for her body to be positively identified. The police had no suspects in the case, and for the time being, Keith Jesperson was free to roam in his quest for other victims. Early in the investigation of Tanya Bennett's murder, Laverne Pavlonak read the news reports surrounding Tanya's Tanya Bennett's death and saw it as an opportunity to force an end to the long-term abusive relationship she had been in with her live-in boyfriend, John Sosnowski. She set up a meeting with the investigating detectives and gave a false confession, using the details she had read in the reports to give a detailed story of how Sosnowski forced her to help him rape, murder, and dispose of Bennett's body. Pavlinak and Sosnowski were convicted of the murder in February of 1991. To avoid the possibility of facing the death penalty, Sosnowski pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison, while Pavlinak was sentenced to no less than 10 years much more than she had anticipated. She soon admitted to making it all up, but her claims were ignored. Meanwhile, with two people put away for a murder they didn't commit, Keith Jesperson remained free to roam the country, trolling for new victims. Born in Chilliwack, British Columbia, Jesperson's primary ambition in life was to become a policeman. Specifically, he wanted more than anything else to become a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. After being accepted into the RCMP program, Jesperson felt that he was well on his way to achieving his dream, However, after sustaining a fall from a rope climbing exercise during RCMP training that severely injured him, he quickly found that his hopes were dashed. Unable to complete his training due to the injury, he was permanently dismissed from the RCMP. Well, there's a little bit here to unpack. We have this Laverne Pavlinak, and she's out here trying to take credit for this murder to really depend it on her boyfriend, John Sosnowski. Um... This is so strange. I guess that Laverne in the past had pulled some stunts like this before to try and get the student in trouble, but this was a new one. I mean, she went to prison for this. Um, <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I mean, like you have to be on, I mean, I, I don't have a politically correct thing to say here. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. I can put it out there for you. She's pretty much a dumbass. <laughs> because who in their right mind would set up such a, a glorified story and just put themselves in such a situation? I mean, the long-term abusive relationship, 
it really had to be, you know, over the top for her to place herself in that position just to get out of that relationship. You you can think there would be a whole lot easier ways to. No, there's a great easy way to, to do that. It's it's called a leave, um, go somewhere else. <laughs> there's a million ways yeah. you can not be in that place. <laughs> like, I mean, I know people who are in abusive relationships and stuff. Sometimes they feel trapped, but at the same time, uh, you can usually escape relatively unscathed. I know that sounds ridiculous to some people, maybe, but I I think that more often than not, you have the ability to take off. Yeah. It, worst case scenario, you have 20, 30 bucks in your pocket and transportation, get in the car. You, you're going to be able to drive a long ways and just start over. I know people personally that, I mean, years and years ago within my family, they, they, they suffered through similar situations that they just picked up and literally moved, you know, hundreds, even thousand miles away from the situation and just distance himself and hit the reset button. Oh yeah, totally. Um, it, it's not within the realm of possibility that somebody could just, you know, like you said, take 50, 60 bucks in gas and take off. I mean, that's, that is easier said than done, right? Because, you know, what do you mm -hmm. do from there? Where do you work? How do you make money? This and that. But if you really fear for yourself and you're in an abusive relationship, then honestly, those things are secondary at that point, because, you know, it could be that one time that it goes too far, you know, and something bad happens to you or you're not alive. Well, even if you're not really sure what you're going to do at least you're alive and you're safe you know and uh again i know that's it, it is easier said than done but i mean i'm the kind of person that doesn't really put up with that kind of crap so if if that were mm -hmm. going on i'd be out in two seconds like you know how many people do you see that are in relationships where you're like what the hell like you know you go home with your wife and you're like uh dude like what are these people doing together <laughs> i mean they are nuts like, yeah. I, I don't know about you, but, um, my wife and I, we we're high school sweethearts. We've been together for ever. And, um, we've never broken up ever. Not once, you know, that typical thing where, oh, we're, we're separated. We're, we're spending time apart and blah, blah. I mean, mm -hmm. honestly, if you have to do that with somebody, they're probably not right for you. <laughs> I mean, it, that's just, maybe it's my opinion and I'm jaded on that, but, uh, these kinds of things, it's like, you know, Hey, um, if you ever get into those situations, you know, where you find yourself in this tumultuous relationship where you're constantly in and out of it, in and out of it, well, you guys aren't right together. There's a reason why you keep getting out of it. Yeah. You might like that person. They're cool when they're good, but then things are never good enough. Like they're just, they don't last. Um, so get out of it while you can. Yeah. Take the opportunity and do the right thing by yourself for sure. If you're able to do so, you know, some people can't, you know. Yeah, that's true. I, uh, I guess I don't want this to turn into a public service announcement for domestic violence either, but yeah, there's there's other ways around it other than framing yourself for a murder or, you know, conspiring to, you know, be complicit to help somebody for murder and get put up for 10 years. Right. <laughs> you know what was crazy? A whole lot easier. What was crazy about this too is I think she even went as far as to like go buy a purse and throw it in her husband's trunk to like make it look like he kidnapped her <laughs> like i mean this was a pretty thought out 
plan. I mean, if you have the time to go do that, like you could easily just get in your car and drive away and like, never come back. <laughs> you know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. Um, so that's what's strange about this whole thing. Uh, yeah, this is so bizarre. Um, but yeah, let's get into it. There's a lot more to this story, so let's get moving. He suddenly felt spurned and deprived and vowed to himself to to get even with a society whose rules barred him from fulfilling his goals. Although he probably didn't realize it at the time, there was a monster hiding deep inside his psyche, just waiting to be unleashed. At some point after his injury, he decided, either consciously or unconsciously, that he would release the monster, ultimately leaving a trail of dead female bodies in its wake. Keith and his family eventually moved to Washington State and took up residence in a trailer park. Lacking any significant job skills, Keith would later take up truck driving and soon realize that he could do the job and that it would become one that he liked. As it turned out, a long-haul trucking outfit in Cheney, Washington, near Spokane, hired him. And before long, he was zigzagging across the U.S. from Washington to Oregon, California, Montana, Nebraska, and even New York and Florida, and all of the states in between. After getting his first taste of blood, so to speak, by murdering Tanya Bennett, Jesperson soon found that he had become addicted to killing. Depending on whose account of Jesperson's activities one chooses to believe, either his own account or official accounts, it appears that Jesperson waited nearly a year and a half before committing his second murder, after which the others appeared to come in rapid succession. According to Jesperson's account, the next murder attributed to him occurred sometime in late July or early August of 1992. An unidentified woman's body was found on August 30th that year, approximately 10 miles north of Blythe, California, and investigators determined that she had been dead for a number of weeks. Labeled a Jane Doe by police, Jesperson would later tell authorities that her name was Claudia. The following month, the body of Cynthia Lynn Rose, 32, was found along U.S. Highway 99 near Turlock, California. She too had been dead for some time, and her death was originally listed as a drug overdose. However, it was about this time that Jesperson began writing letters to the media, particularly to a columnist for the Oregonian newspaper in Portland, Oregon, claiming responsibility for Rose's murder, as well as others. In one letter, he had claimed that Rose was a prostitute he had picked up and murdered. He signed his letters with a smiling, happy face, and the columnist from the Oregonian quickly dubbed him, for lack of any other name, the Happy Face Killer. Although the letters were turned over to the police, there was little for investigators to go on with regard to identifying the letter writer, and Jesperson would maintain his anonymity until 1995. Lori Ann Pentland, <clears throat> 26, became the next victim. Lori's body was found in November 1992 behind a G.I. Joe's store in Salem, Oregon, the state's capital about 50 miles south of Portland. Detectives determined that she had been strangled, but were left with no leads as to who her killer might be. However, they would eventually learn the strangulation appeared to be the Happy Face Killer's preferred method of murder. The following July, another Jane Doe was found west of Santanella, California, on a state highway near a truck turnout. The woman had been dead for only a couple of days when her body was found, and a county coroner listed her death as a drug overdose. Her case would eventually be reopened and looked at as a homicide after the Happy Face Killer wrote another letter and referred to her as a street person. The remains of what would be known as victim number six on the Happy Face Killer's list, another Jane Doe, was found more than a year later on September 4, 14, 1994, west of Crestview, Florida, along Interstate 10, by a road crew working in the Florida Panhandle. 
The remains consisted of mostly bones of a woman that investigators believe had been approximately 40 years old at the time of her death. The following year, a detective would begin focusing on Jesperson as a possible suspect, but only after Jesperson claimed victim number eight and following his apprehension. Although homicide detectives had made several attempts at identifying the woman through facial reconstructions, for the time being, as with all other as yet unconnected cases, investigators had little to work with aside from the bones. Jesperson, however, would eventually claim that this victim's name was Suzanne. Somewhere, somebody is missing a daughter, a wife, or a sister, one of the Florida investigators said. Although her corpse would not be found until September 1995, 21-year-old Angela Surprise of Oklahoma City would become Jesperson's seventh victim. Until then, Few people would realize that Angela was even missing, much less dead due to the transient lifestyle that she led. It wasn't until victim number eight that Jesperson became careless by murdering someone he knew instead of a complete stranger. Julie Ann Winningham, 41, of Camas, Washington, was believed to have been murdered on March 10, 1995, in Washougal, Washington, just a few miles east of Vancouver, Washington. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Well, as you can tell there, like the body count just starts going up in rapid succession at this point. And, um, you know, his preferred method is strangling women, you know, and he pretty much keeps to that the entire time. Um, so what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think when he was injured and fell out of the, uh, the RCMP program that that was like, his trigger to put his foot on the accelerator and just start killing people. And it was all over the place, right? You know, you're Oklahoma city, you are in Florida or in Washington, all across the country. And, you know, the more I read into this, this case, as I was looking through notes and things, I remember when this happened in the early nineties, these, these bodies, you know, you would hear reports about this in the news and they were just popping up everywhere along freeways. And, you know, the primary suspect at that time, you know, they believe to be a truck driver because they were happening so far apart. Yeah. Um, I don't know about that RCMP stuff. I, I'm sure it contributes. I just wonder if he would have continued because he had such a weird upbringing anyway. Like, I wonder if he would have ended up being like a, a murderer anyway, even as a member of the police. Like, you know, could we have seen like something where you have a policeman doing these kinds of things and he can hide even better. It might be a good thing that he never made it, you know? Yeah, that's true. I mean, that, well, that's the ultimate alibi, you know, become a member of law enforcement, but still can continue in your ways of murdering and killing people. You know, what's, that's like the ultimate alibi. Yeah, it is. And, um, <clears throat> and I don't know, um, it might, you know, uh, he really seemed to, thrive on on the the kill and it's weird how like almost every woman he kills is a jane doe like no one knows these people so like 
like does he have some weird method of like figuring out who these kind of people are that he can go get them like i don't know you know what i mean i think it's because most of them do have that transient lifestyle like you mentioned for that that one person Mm -hmm. um all right time for personal story of the week we did a lot of this last week but (laughs) i i mentioned last week that you know my dad was an over-the-road truck driver and i pretty much saw the whole east coast with him but there were a lot of weird people at truck stops you know you you obviously have you know no choice but when you need to sleep, you need to pull over somewhere where it's can accommodate a truck, tractor, trailer, and sleep. So, you know, the easiest place to do that's a truck stop because they have these gigantic parking lots. And there are these women that, that frequent these truck stops. They're prostitutes, and they know that there's, you know, a bunch of horny, lonely dudes sleeping in a truck. You know, it's easy, easy targets. But the personal story I wanted to share was my dad wasn't, he was a very bright dude. I, I don't mean to say that in the past tense. He is still alive as far as I know. <laughs> but um, I remember one time specifically, I think we were in Jersey City over on the East Coast, New York City or downtown Jersey somewhere. And it was super late at night when we got where we were going. And there wasn't anywhere to eat that late at night. And we went into this one truck stop. It was kind of like a lounge. But he's like, I knew he had been there because he's like, we got to go sit in the back because, you know, we just have to. He didn't really explain. Next thing I know, I'm looking up there, and this is a diner-style restaurant, kind of envision a darker, shadier waffle house. (laughs) And these women that are frequent in the parking lot are coming in. They're jamming the jukebox, and these women are dancing on the bar as if it's a bar. I don't know. I don't remember if they served alcohol there or not, but it was the only place to get something to eat. And I think he felt bad that we'd been driving for so long. And, you know, obviously kid, you're starving to death. You're ready to get something to eat. So I don't know why his parental compass wasn't working real well that night. We went in there and I think he knew what was in there. That's why he had us sit in the back. But yeah, I saw some things at age 12 or 13. I shouldn't have seen in that place. (laughs) Let's just leave it at that. (laughs) Well, well, I need to know more. What did you see? What was, what was going on in there? Well, he referred to the one person that was dancing on the counter of this diner as Flashlight Annie. And you know, usually when you refer to somebody as Flashlight, <laughs> you're showing something that you shouldn't be. So I think I might have had my first uh, Waffle House slash strip club experience like four to five years before I was actually an adult. And I'm not even sure why they let him in there with me at the time. <laughs> <laughs> probably because they weren't technically allowed to tell you not to go in there i don't think it was one of those places that was sanctioned for these kinds of events it sounds like just kind of yeah. just kind of happened <laughs> it was definitely interesting to say the least wow so i mean you're a young kid and you're like kind of embarrassed by seeing this so you're like kind of put your head down and eat but curiosity always kills you you're always gonna peek up and glare out of the corner of your eye a little bit <laughs> Well, yeah, you want to really watch the whole show, but, uh, you know, your dad's there. You can't. It's kind of weird. <laughs> it was definitely weird. That's my weird story for the week. Oh, man. Yeah, that uh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That's pretty awesome. But, I mean, that's the type of people you see in these truck stops. And 
I can attribute that to the Jane Doe because I'm sure a lot of them were probably homeless. They didn't have anything to anywhere to go and they would frequent these places, you know, to either, you know, have sex for money or have sex for drugs. That's how they existed. That's how they survived. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not a lifestyle I'm interested in living. So, uh, someone's got to do it, I guess. No, I think if I had to do the truck stop thing, I would be more apt to pull off the rest area on the side of the road. <laughs> a lot less shady. I mean, not to say there's not shady people at rest stops, but it's a little bit more out in the open, a little bit, you know, not as isolated as a truck stop behind these shady restaurants and buildings and restaurants and all this other stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I don't know what I would do with, uh, you know, all these weirdos around, like, I don't know, it make me so uncomfortable, but I guess it is what it is. Like the others, she had been strangled and her nude body had been dumped over an embankment alongside State Highway 14, just east of Clark and Skamania County line. Unlike the others, Julie's friends and relatives knew that she had been seeing Jesperson and provided the first valuable link, his name, that would aid investigators in apprehending one of the most notorious serial killers of the past decade. Homicide investigators learned that she had left Utah in the company of 39-year-old Keith Jesperson, a truck driver employed by Systems Transport out of Cheney, Washington. Picked up for questioning, Jesperson soon confessed to his role in a series of murders around the Pacific Northwest, including Tanya Bennett's. Authorities were skeptical until Jesperson led them to Bennett's missing purse. On November 3, 1995, he pled guilty to Bennett's murder and two other Oregon, Oregon slayings and subsequently sentenced to life imprisonment. Media reports claim Jesperson wept with joy when John Sosnowski and Laverne Pavlinak were released from custody on November 27. By that time, however, Jesperson, or Face as he liked to sign his letters from prison, had more pressing matters to worry about. His string of confessions had a price tag attached in the form of subsequent indictments and convictions. A new case had also been opened since his arrest with the September 95 discovery of a woman's badly decomposed remains along Interstate 80 in Nebraska. A tattoo and x-rays identified the woman as 21-year-old Angela Surbriza, an Oklahoma City native, last seen alive in Wyoming with Jesperson in January of 1995. The trucker, for his part, admitted killing Surbriza, in Wyoming, afterward tying her corpse beneath his truck and dragging it for 10 or 12 miles before he finally dumped it after crossing into Nebraska. Well, um, that's a little odd. So it seems like he's getting bored of killing people, so now he has to start dragging their bodies under his truck. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, that's why I wanted to put that break in there. I, <clears throat> I don't know if he's getting bored or if he... This girl really pissed him off and did something to really drive him over the top. I wish we knew those details. I mean, can you imagine, holy shit, tying a dead body to the bottom of your truck and just dragging it? What's going to be left after 12 miles? Not much. Uh, maybe that was the point. Get rid of evidence. Jesus Christ. I mean, I've seen deer and other animals hit alongside the road, and you, you always can tell when a big truck hits them because it, it leaves just the most god-awful streak of, like, fat hair and blood for <laughs> a couple hundred feet. I just... <laughs> I can't imagine a human body being drugged that far. No, I mean, there couldn't be much left, right? 
No, not at all. I yeah, I just wanted to throw that quick discussion point in there. It was like, you know, is he escalating what he does? His his typical MO was strangulation and dump the body, but this one for some reason he took the extra step of tying her up and dragging her. So I don't know that that really resolves into anything else further down the story here, but I just wanted to call it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that was it's pretty uh, intense, but anyway, we can continue on. Okay. Part of the problem for investigators was the ever-changing list of Jesperson's confessions. At one point, he allegedly confessed to 160 murders, describing his victims as piles of garbage dumped on the roadside, but he soon recanted most of the stories. One case he backtracked on was that of Angela Surprise, doubtlessly influenced by Wyoming's expressed intent to indict him on capital charges. He still admitted knowing Angela, even sharing her bed on occasion but now insisted they had parted company while on the road. Wyoming prosecutors didn't buy the revised version, filing extradition papers with the governor of Oregon in 1997. Jesperson's next ploy was a new confession, this time to the slaying of a fourth Oregon woman, Bend resident Bobby Krasinski, killed in 1992. Jack Krasinski was already serving time for his wife's murder, but Jesperson seemed bent on springing him from custody as he had done with Sosnowski and Pavlinak in the Bennett case. He hit a snag this time, however, when police tracking his movements were able to rule out any contact between Face and the victim. In fact, they charged a former cellmate had been running interference between Jesperson and Jack Krasenzi, supplying Keith with details of the crime, Krasenzi offering $10,000 payable to Jesperson's children for his confession that would lead to his release. Exposure of the jailhouse plot led some authorities to question Jesperson's confession in the Bennett case, but his real problem lay in Wyoming. Extradited in December of 1997, Jesperson initially boasted of his plan to demolish the prosecution's case by exposing his own prior lies, then switched to yet another angle of attack, confessing once again to the Surprise homicide. One difference. He had actually killed Surprise in Nebraska, Jesperson now claimed, contesting Wyoming's right to try the case at all. When all else failed, he copped another plea on June 3, 1998, admitting the surprise murder in exchange for another life sentence. Ever the manipulator, Face had barely filed that plea before telling the press he had lied about killing Tanya Bennett. It was good for filler in the papers, but if Jesperson believed it would reverse the Oregon sentence, he was destined for grave disappointment. Formally sentenced in four cases, he is suspected by authorities of at least four more slayings, including one from 1994 in Okaloosa County, Florida. Closer to home, prosecutors in Riverside County, California have announced their intent to try Jesperson for a 1992 murder near Blythe, if he ever seems likely to win parole. Well, it looks like, you know, he's trying to play the long game where he's finding out of these, these states that can try him and put him to death. And he's suddenly like changing course, you know, trying to avoid that death penalty as much as possible. Um, what a coward. Yeah, exactly. What a coward. Why do you think, why do you think guys that finally are, you know, the gig is up, they're caught, they're going to get prosecuted. They're facing the death penalty. Why do you think these guys that find it so easy to kill, torture, and, and just murder other people have such a problem with being put to death? I mean, some don't, obviously, but then there's these ones that they fear it. I'm not sure why. I mean, obviously you fear death, but it's, it's a man-up situation. If you're going to kill and murder a bunch of people, 
you should fully expect to be put to death. Yeah, and you hear the way, like, in the trailer that he talks about killing people. Like, it's very matter-of-fact to him. Hey, it happened. Let's move on. No big deal. And it's like, okay, well, um, you know, it is a big deal. It's people, and you killed them. So we're not going to sit here and pretend that that didn't just happen. And it's like he wants people to sweep that under the rug. Nah, no big deal. But at the same time, he doesn't want to be put to death. Um, You know, and I think it comes down to a power struggle, you know, where he is trying to prove he is so powerful by killing these women and, you know, torturing animals and those kinds of things. Like, it's a, it's a total power trip. He doesn't really want to die. You know, those two things can be mutually exclusive. Yeah, I, I just... He... I think that the, there's too much controversy over the death penalty, in my opinion. We, I mean, we've made our feelings known from all of the cases we've covered at this point that some of these people are just garbage, and they, they should be you know, put away. If that's a death penalty, they shouldn't wait around. They should get it done. I mean, these people are going to have a much more humane death than the victims that they tortured and murdered over all the years. So, I mean, they're going to get sedated, they're going to get put to sleep, and then they're going to get killed. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like cases like this where, you know, you've got like several bodies and it's known who it is and, and this and that, like, you know, those kind of people, in my opinion, don't really deserve to be around, you know, after what they did to everyone else. And I always say it, the, the families that have to deal with the the wake of the, the actions of this person, you know, yeah, you killed that one person, but it wasn't that one person you hurt. It's the people who are still alive who have to deal with what you did. That and your family. And like we covered last week, you know, his daughter, and I think he has two other kids, you know, they have to deal with the fact that their dad is a serial killer. Like, you know, that's not cool. Um, it's, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where there's, it's not nice to say it, but I mean, this dude shouldn't really be alive anymore. He shouldn't be allowed to live. Um, nope. You know, he, he chose that for himself by his actions and it wasn't one time, you know, it was many times over. Um, that, that's where I am. You know, I can kind of understand if you murdered one person and you don't get sentenced to death, but you're in there for life. Like I kind of can get that because, you know, there's always that chance that something was wrong or, you know, like you didn't really kill that person. You got put away incorrectly and, and this and that, but you know, when you got a guy like this and you know what happened and you know how many people it was and you know, I don't know. I, I'm at that point. I have, I don't feel sorry for him. Yeah. For me at that point, the only compass or the only differentiation between the two is, is it a crime of passion? Is it something that happened? You didn't mean it to happen. I mean, obviously you mean to kill somebody. You Maybe you don't. And it, it is an accident and it happens and it's in a fit of rage. It's a thing, like I said, a crime of passion. Where on the flip side of that, you have this guy who gets great joy in doing it over and over and over again. I mean, to me, that's the the yes, no deciding factor of whether you should be put to death or not. There should be no other, anal- you know, no other analyzing of the situation other than that. I mean, it's pretty cut and dry when you read a narrative like this, to me anyways. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, we know enough about this in this case that it should 
that should be how it goes. But I think the states that he was tried in don't really go for the death penalty. So um, that's kind of why we're where we are. But like, mm-hmm. like the way you listen to him, like said in the trailer, like he just, uh, he's a piece of crap. Like he has no feelings. He doesn't feel bad for this at all. Yep. So let's get, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Let's talk about the convictions and put the uh, case closed stamp on this one. In October 1995, just before his trial was slated to begin, Keith Jesperson pleaded guilty to the murder of Julie Ann Winningham before Clark County, Washington Superior Court Judge Robert L. Harris. Harris, the same judge who presided over the Wesley Allen Dodd case, would sentence Jesperson to life in prison in December following proceedings in Oregon. Meanwhile, Jesperson waived extradition from Clark County and was transferred to Oregon. On Thursday, November 2, 1995, after waiving all of his rights, he entered a no-contest plea before Multnomah County presiding Judge Donald H. Launder for the murder of Tanya Bennett. Launder immediately sentenced Jesperson to life in prison, setting a minimum 30-year prison term before being eligible for parole. Launder's sentence, in effect, gave Jesperson what he wanted, namely prison time in Oregon. Proceedings elsewhere would require extradition, meaning considerable expense and a lot of red tape. The Oregon sentence made potential death penalties in other states less likely, and Jesperson knew it. The no-contest plea and subsequent sentence also set the final wheels for Pavlinak and Sosnovsky's release from prison into motion. However, there was another Oregon case involving Jesperson that had to be dealt with in the meantime, the murder of 23-year-old Lori Ann Pentland. According to the Marion County District Attorney's Office, investigators linked Jesperson to Pentland's murder through DNA and other forensic evidence after learning that Jesperson was the Happy Face Killer. Jesperson had written letters as the Happy Face Killer after Pentland's murder, claiming responsibility for her death, and had said this that she was an acquaintance that he had contacted via Citizens Band Radio while in the Salem area. In one of the letters, he had said that he had had sex with her several times. He's quoted as saying, I felt so much power. He had written as the happy face killer. I then told her she was going to die, and then I slowly strangled her. Jesperson was again sentenced to life in prison in Oregon with a 30-year minimum term before parole eligibility. Following his sentencing in Washington, he was transferred to the Oregon State Penitentiary to begin serving consecutive sentences. If he remains alive to complete his sentences in Oregon, he will be transferred to the Washington State Penitentiary to begin serving his life sentence there. More than two years later and after considerable legal wrangling, the state of Wyoming finally succeeded in extraditing Jesperson for trial for the murder of Angela Surprise. For the next few months, as prosecutors prepared to go to trial, Jesperson taunted the authorities and threatened to force a costly trial by changing his story regarding the jurisdiction in which he had killed Angela. At one point, he said that he had killed her in Wyoming, and at another, he claimed that he killed her in Nebraska. After going back and forth for some time surrounding Jesperson's deliberate misleading statements and his attempt to confuse authorities on who had jurisdiction to prosecute him, a deal was worked out. Jesperson agreed to plead guilty to murdering Angela Surprise in Wyoming if Laramie County prosecutors would agree not to seek the death penalty against him. As a result, on June 3, 1998, District Judge Nicholas Catholis sentenced Jesperson to life in prison and ordered that the sentence run consecutive to the two life sentences in Oregon and the life sentence in Washington, leaving little doubt that he would die in prison. Afterward, he was promptly returned to the Oregon State Penitentiary. It remains to be seen whether any jurisdictions, such as states of Florida or California, will prosecute Jesperson for the murders that he confessed to in those states. 
so um you know here we are and he's you know life in prison and um you know since then we you know we have the stuff with his daughter where she came out with a book and she talks about being the child of a serial killer and um <clears throat> she's kind of piggybacked off of his his fame if you will using that to catapult herself into writing some books and stuff um she even had a tv show for a little while where they met with people who had you know loved ones who had been murdered and stuff like that and you know it was interesting um and then you have jesperson and you know his story of how he's murdered and then you know he ends up in in prison and he's serving his life sentences playing that game with the cops there and and the prosecution by trying to make sure that he doesn't get a death sentence. So I think we've probably already said it, but I mean, obviously the guy's a scumbag. And if you listen to that trailer and listen to the way he's just nonchalant about murder and how he killed people, um, you know, this guy is just, he's at the top of my list of just piles of garbage. That's for sure. Yeah. These states need to step up their game with the, the capital punishment. Like, like we said, we won't keep rehashing it, but some cases it's justified. And this is just another prime example of one of those cases where, you know, what is it? 96. We're, we're 20 plus years past the fact that he's been sitting in prison, serving out his life sentence and should have already been brought to a head and had him put to death already. And just a side note there, I didn't realize that Melissa Moore had had a television show with that kind of, you know, content or subject line so maybe i'll have to go check that out i'm I'm assuming that dr phil helped her out with that tv show but <laughs> yeah i think so um yeah as one of our uh keen listeners uh clued us in i think it was on instagram maybe twitter i don't remember but they said dr phil in fact is not a doctor so i thought he was but oh really i didn't get we'll that to... um We'll have to consult the interwebs to confirm that for sure. I'm looking right now. <laughs> is Dr. Phil a real doctor is one of the first results that comes up. Um, Dr. Phil, you're on the spot. <laughs> what do you have What do you have to say for yourself? Let's see. I need my uh, Jeopardy music. <laughs> we can splice that in. Oh, okay. It says that he obtained his PhD in clinical psychology from the University of North Texas. He's not a licensed therapist. Um, yeah, so... So he got his degree, but he didn't get his license to practice? That's Is that what it's saying? I know what it seems like. And it says in here, most doctors will keep the names of and information of their patients confidential. Dr. Phil has been accused of violating patients' privacies in the past, namely Britney Spears in 2008. Um, he wrote a blog post about his experience when he visited Spears in the hospital and disclosed her mental state to entertainment tonight. <laughs> this guy's, he's a little sleazy. Um, he's an opportunist. Yeah. He explained he retired his license to have private practice on his 25th anniversary because it was a Texas license and he moved to California. And he says, I do, however, still have 30 years experience and a hard earned PhD in clinical psychology. So you still have to call me Dr. Phil. Um, it, it it pays more money to be an asshole on TV than an actual good doctor, I assume. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, 
Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, he technically is a doctor, but yeah, he doesn't have his license anymore because he doesn't want it because he doesn't need it. He's making way more money doing that TV show. So, um, I would say, and, and to, he, and to come, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, and to come to Britney Spears defense, uh, if Dr. Phil was my psychologist, I probably would have went nuts and shaved my head too. <laughs> no kidding. Um, she's a hot mess or was a hot mess. I don't know. Is she even relevant anymore? Yeah, I don't know. I think she's got a Vegas uh, tenureship now, so she's got her retirement plan in place in Vegas. <laughs> so, so you're saying we're going to start this show with Nickelback, and we're going to roll this thing off and finish it with Britney Spears. So if you if you splice in some Britney Spears music at the end of this when you're editing, <laughs> it might be a hard episode to top, people. Well, I mean... <laughs> That's going to be a copyright nightmare for you this week on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm going to have to be submitting my uh, rebuttals all week long for this one. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, oh, well. Such is life, right? Yeah. All right, I think we're ready to wrap this thing up and get ready for next week. That's right. All right. If you enjoy the show, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support us financially, you can head out to our website, www.killerpod.net, and click the support button at the top of the page or via the navigation menu. Or you can visit our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash killer podcast. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. You can reach us at on Twitter at killer underscore podcast on Instagram at killer podcast. Facebook is facebook.com forward slash killer podcast. And don't forget to check out our new YouTube channel. I put that in there twice because I'm an idiot. And last but not least, you can shoot us an email with any case recommendations or just to shoot the breeze at kill. It's killer podcast at gmail.com. And last but not least, stay safe. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.